Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on? Another Wednesday, another episode of the Growth EQ Podcast. Was feeling a little bit tired this morning, but uh, I've activated my way out of it to record with you. Oh man, look at that hint. Well, before we get into what to do when you're tired and not feeling like you can get things done. Um, just a quick note that our Patreon group, if you're struggling, if you're you're sitting there being like, man, I wish I had a community to support me, to be a part of, to read interesting books every month, to discuss them. Well, guess what? We got you covered. Head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation. Join our monthly book club. Talk to some best-selling authors Get these podcasts early, get exclusive items, even early copies of or copies of our books when they come out. So check all that out. Head on over there and see what it's all about. The copies are uh, they're early because we send them with love. Unfortunately, our publishers would kill us if they were actually early, but you get them the day that they come out. And also... Chris Douglas, our COO, is working on making some stickers. So if you're a sticker person, definitely join. There is nothing that would look better on the back of your laptop than the Growth EQ logo. Love it. All right, so let's get into today's topic. Why is everyone tired all the time and what can we do about it? You know, what I've noticed in both of us talking to coaching clients, talking to friends, talking to colleagues, is there's this overwhelming sense of, man, like just kind of languishing, tired, fatigued, like struggle to do things that maybe you used to do easily. Maybe it's get out the door to exercise. Maybe it's sit down to write a book, right? I've struggled with that as well. Um but what I think you're seeing is, is pretty simple. As we have this world now where we have uh, constant stimulation, constant reminders that there is something else that we could do, right, that can catch our attention and drag us over to you know, our phone or whatever have you. And at the same time, we combine that constant stimulus, constant something else other to do with this, what I'd call this chronic low-level underlying anxiety that comes from the world seems very uncertain. The world seems like it often doesn't make sense. It seems like it's incredibly divided and things that we kind of took for granted, maybe, you know, we can't anymore. It might seem like, hey, I don't know what it's going to be like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And for certain generations, I think Brad and mine included, is that for a long time, even though, you know, chaotic things happened, um, the world seemed relatively predictable. You knew kind of what path was coming next. And I think when you combine those two things, that constant stimulation and the uncertainty on the kind of world level, that creates this personal uncertainty, this personal chronic anxiety. And what we know from decades of literature on anxiety is that you know, low-level anxiety is 
kind of exhausting to deal with, right? It makes us, it puts us in this like apathetic state where it's like, ah, why should we try? Why should I get out the door? Like this takes too much work to do this thing that used to come very easily. So, and not to mention we're coming in, you know, out of COVID, all that stuff, which created that as well. But I think it's these, this combination mixture that is leaving a lot of people feeling like, hey, I'm tired all the time. Hey, it's a, it's a struggle. And the, the go-to, at least in America, is just grit your teeth, you know, find some willpower and, and work your way through it. But that only works for a, a short term and over long haul, that fails miserably. So even the advice that most give of, hey, you know, you got to grind, you got to work, et cetera, backfires because when it doesn't work, we sit there and and think like, oh, like I don't have enough willpower. I'm not tough enough. I'm not good enough. I can't get it done. And it just sends us spiraling more into that chronic anxiety state of apathy. All right. So that's a lot of good stuff. Let, let me set the stage a little bit further. I think that two things are going on. One is that over the last couple of years, really since 2016, there has been an increase in what I'm going to call real rates of disruption, disorder, and chaos. Since 2008, there has been an inflationary, I'm going to call it, raise in our awareness of disorder, disruption, and chaos through social media and really the internet as a whole. It used to be that we would read the newspaper at most once a day, and that would be where we'd get our news, and then we'd go on with our day, and now we are constantly bombarded by stuff nonstop. So either of those two forces alone would have led to an increase in arousal. Put them together, you've kind of got a perfect storm. The second thing that I'll say is that word arousal is really important because what any decent scientist would tell you is likely going on with some of the cause of our fatigue is that we have been in a heightened state of chronic low-level arousal for a very long time, and the body is really good at being in aroused states for short periods of time, but not chronically. And what happens after that chronic state of arousal is the body just says, screw it, I'm tired, and suddenly it becomes very hard to get out of bed in the morning. So again, I think this is such an important point. Even if there was no increase in real disorder, disruption, and chaos, We've become much more aware of it, and there's a 24-7 pipeline of these events hitting us through our phones and our computers and our televisions. That is coupled with a very real increase in disorder, disruption, and chaos. I would argue it started with the election of Donald Trump and the social unrest that that caused, regardless of what side you're on. It continued with Black Lives Matter and those movements. It crescendoed with COVID, and right when we thought we were going to get a respite, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. So... Those are all like the election of Trump, the Black Lives Matter movements, COVID and the war. Those are four events that are totally like off kilter. If you think about the last couple of decades, you'd almost have to go back to like World War II for this kind of war at Europe for an election as shocking as Donald Trump, maybe never for COVID 1918 and for Black Lives Matter, the civil rights movement. And again, I'm being values neutral. Like a lot of these things are complex. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that Vladimir Putin's an asshole and everyone here knows my feelings about Donald Trump. But like the point is, these are stressors. These are stressful events. And then they're coupled with the nonstop deluge of notifications about these events, 
So our alarm system can only go off for so long before it just says, screw it, I'm piecing out, I'm done. The one thing I'd add there, and that was a nice summation, Brad, is that <clears throat> when we feel that low-level anxiety or arousal, um, when we feel that chaos, our body tends to and our mind tend to grasp to fill that hole of uncertainty. And we, we do it to use a analogy use all the you you like to use all the time is we reach for the candy, not the brown rice, right? So one of the 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 things that I've seen often is that we have this low level, you know, uncertainty, arousal, all that stuff, which is fatiguing us, and we reach for the short term solutions, the finding certainty in places that you know, maybe don't help over the long haul. And that contributes to this feeling of like tiredness, fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> that just seems to be overwhelming uh, society right now. Yeah. And, um, and then I think the only other thing that is maybe acutely layered onto that is because of the pandemic, for many people, um, life became a little bit more streamlined. Like there was less of an opportunity for normal times of slowing down and just hanging because it was unsafe to do so for a while. So even like our social engagements that are normally, again, unscripted, real sources of rest and recovery they either got scheduled in half an hour increments on Zoom or they themselves became stressful because your Uncle Joe would sneeze and then your blood pressure would go through the roof because maybe you just got COVID from Uncle Joe. Uh, so some of our normal responses to to stress and to arousal that we normally use to recover also went away. Um, there's that study that you always talk about, Steve, where those uh, rugby mates, uh, after a long game, they found that the number one thing to turn down a stress response is not ice baths or uh, eating bamboo or whatever in vogue it is to eat. It is just hanging out with your friends. Uh, and that was what was taken away from us during COVID. And I think a lot of people, that muscle has atrophied and we're struggling to get back into it. So it's really like the perfect freaking storm. And we're going to get into some solutions because Steve said it's not just why we're tired all the time, but also what we can do about it. But I think it's really important to like paint these like multiple forces of, again, unprecedented technology that makes us feel aroused all the time, unprecedented shit that's happened in the world that ought to make us aroused all the time, and the taking away of the things that we normally use to come down from all this arousal. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It's the ability to turn it off has kind of... Uh kind of gone away and dissipated because all of our normal strategies, even from belonging and connection to pursuing certain hobbies to even things like, you know, going to work so that we have, you know, others that were struggling with this at the same time through, right? Part of work is not only uh, you know, doing the actual work is creating a community around people doing difficult things together. And as we know from the literature and sports teams, especially as you can handle difficult things much easier when you've got people in your corner working out at the same time as you, right? Uh, then when it's you alone, and I think the pandemic, especially 
kind of isolated people and made it seem like it was them alone going through these difficult things. And then the other part of it is, I think also when the world goes, you know, actually legit crazy or chaotic, we tend to to minimize or like try to compartmentalize um, the the quote unquote small things in our life because we just sit there as like, oh, well, people are going through a pandemic. So does it really matter that I'm a little bit lonely because I can't see my friends or family? And well, that's, you know, to a degree honorable. It also, you know, takes away some of your your basic needs, which allow you to um, handle difficult times and, and deal with it. So I think it's it's like you said, it's this whole collection of things that all came together and happened at the same time that leaves us a little frazzled, leaves us a little, you know, chronic stimulus of arousal and anxiety. And how do we deal with that? Well, our body kind of goes into a, a kind of freeze or protect response, right? Where it says, oh, this is this is uh this is this is not good so what do we do we're gonna shut you down so that you can rest and recover so that you bounce back up but because that chronic anxiety or chronic low level arousal is always there like the rest and recover response of just don't do anything doesn't actually work yep and um so how do we get out of it is i think that we kind of have to reverse engineer the principles that got us into this mess. And I think that um, there's things that we can control and there's things that we cannot. So the first thing that we can control is limiting our access to constant breaking news stories and social media posts and other things that cause these blips in arousal throughout the day, 24-7. We've said this before, unless you're actually going to change your behavior on something, it is more than fine to read a hardcover newspaper or hard copy, I should say, excuse me, newspaper every morning. And even that you'd be like way overly informed And the depth of what you're reading would go up too, because you wouldn't just be skimming from headline to headline. So what I've noticed in my own life, and, and this is a real thing, it's perhaps why you haven't seen so many tweets from me is that when I am on social media and I am on NewYorkTimes.com or WallStreetJournal.com a lot, I am very tired. I struggle to get out of bed in the morning and I crash midday. When I am spending my time and effort either engaging one-on-one with coaching clients, working on deep writing projects, or reading a book, I have none of that fatigue. My energy goes through the roof. And What I've noticed is that if I can ratchet down those arousal pings throughout the day, I just feel so much better. And it doesn't take long. It takes like four or five days, and then I feel better. Now, a common counter argument to this is, well, isn't that putting your head in the sand? And isn't that no good? And what I would say to that is I don't think reading the news once a day is putting your head in the sand. And as terrible as what's happening, let's take, for example, in Ukraine is right now, I don't need to get hour by hour updates because those missiles aren't coming down on my house. And it's not going to affect whether or not I give money to charity if I get hour by hour updates versus day by day updates. 
that could change. It can suck to accept that. You can want to do something and you can want to get those updates and just make it all stop and punch out Vladimir Putin or whatever it takes, but you can't do that. So then the question is, well, why are you allowing yourself to be put in this hyper aroused state? Um, my current news consumption is like twice a week, to be honest, right now. And I feel so much better than when it was more than that. Yeah, I, I think turning down that stimulus is is important because and what I would do is I would also say is expand that and do the work to reflect on like what in your life is is causing or contributing to this this kind of chronic uh, low level arousal. Like what are the things that give you that angst? And I know for me, too, is it's often like scrolling on Twitter or doing the work, doing that or doing that kind of stuff. Um I think here, time off or a day off, similar to how in running or exercise, like it rejuvenates you and resets you. I think a day off from this stuff, like really, really helps. Like it reintroduces your mind to like how reality should work. So what I've recently been doing is taking essentially Sundays off of, you know, social media of most electronics although there's some exceptions i i call it my try to live like it's 1990 something again day where it's like yeah you can use your phone but like don't scroll on social media yeah you can watch tv but like don't binge netflix whatever it is so <clears throat> that's just my solution to it the other thing that i think is is kind of counterintuitive but works well is don't only worry about the things that help you lower that bar or turn that stimulus down. Find things and do things that put you back in, in how your stress response system is supposed to work, which is rapid activation when you need it and then rapid decline. So what do I mean by that? Do things that make you feel alive, right? Go do a hard workout, right? Get that stress response, and then it goes down and goes away once you stop. Like, go, you know, spend time doing something adventurous with your friends or spouse or what, whatever have you. Go on an amazing hike that makes you feel like that experience of awe and feeling alive and all that stuff. Like, experience high levels of emotion and of physiological arousal. But generally what happens in those, those time periods is, you experience that arousal and then it just shuts off because that's how the body works. So in doing some of that stuff, you can actually realign kind of your stress response system so that it works more how it's supposed to instead of getting stuck in this like chronic middle state of like, yeah, kind of stressed, kind of anxious, but, you know, not completely um, at all. Love it. All right. So that is for the things that we can control. What about for what we can't control, which is the real increase in craziness in the world over the last couple of years? Um, it's a little bit tougher because you can't just turn it off. And I don't think it's good to bury one's head in the sand completely. Uh, but what we can start to do in many, many, many places of the country for many, many people is getting back to those social bonds and connections that make us feel less anxious in the midst of arousal. 
So this was a big part of groundedness. It's a big part of Steve's forthcoming book. It's a big part of an essay that I'm working on for the times right now. It's just a part of everything we do because it's so integral to our species. And I'll tell it like this. If you think back to evolution and you're on the savannah and there's predators all over and you need food to eat, but you also can't be hunted, are you going to fare better if you're on your own or if you're in a large group of people? Of course, you're going to fare better if you're in a large group of people. The lion or the bear or the hyena will be scared away from you because there'll be many of you. And if you get unlucky hunting, then you can share food with other people in the community and repay them the favor. So this need to be in groups is a part of our evolution, and it's particularly important during times of distress. As an aside, this is why loneliness and isolation is so often associated with poor sleep. Because if you're all alone and you fall asleep and the lion comes, you're dead. But if you're in a group of 100 people, someone's bound to be up and the lion might not come because he or she will see 100 of you. So being socially situated is so important to keeping arousal from turning into downright anxiety. And then as Steve pointed out, from anxiety eventually turning into fatigue. Now that COVID is better in most places, now that there are vaccines, again, I can't speak for everyone, but for most people, the benefit of being in person with others far outweighs the risk of contracting COVID and getting sick with it. I think a lot of people are still saying that they might not want to gather in the same way they did because of COVID. But when you probe, what's actually there is they're just kind of in an inertia of not getting together in person because getting together in person takes more effort and therefore they're not doing it. And what they do instead is they continue to optimize and streamline their life, which for a lot of people, it means going to NewYorkTimes.com or Wall Street Journal four times a day, which is the very thing that is causing this overload of arousal. So It's a long-winded way of saying in the face of things that we can't control that cause arousal, the best way to stop that arousal from turning into anxiety is to really up the ante on engaging socially in meaningful ways. It's not just a nice to do. It is what our DNA responds to. Yeah, the, the thing I'd add there is local community and real belonging or connection and in person works so much better than anything online via text etc i get it if that's all you got like go for it call a friend instead of texting them but like it helps expand our or our, our perspective as well because often what happens is in these situations especially when real things are happening and we can't control it we <laughs> we like go a little bit nuts because our worldview, our brain's worldview is based on like all of this global stuff that feels local. What we need it to be is based on like locally what actually is happening to us and what actually, you know, matters and all all that good stuff. Right. So compare how we might currently, and I'm using the, the, the collective we, me and Steve on more days than we ought to and presumably many of you listeners, compare how we currently spend a day versus doing something hard with your body, running a workout, gardening outside, going on a hike, and then getting together with pizza for friends at night and reading a book before bed. That is so freaking different than 
spending most of your day alone in front of screens where even if you're not wanting to, you're getting all these notifications and pings or texts from your brother-in-law or sister-in-law saying, oh my God, did you see this thing? Uh, it's a very different way of being and, and, and it totally heightens the arousal until you get collapse and, and then this exhaustion that we're all experiencing. Exactly. And the, the other thing that I'd say as well is, you know, maybe this is um, more of a, a short term thing that that helps as well is that if you feel yourself going down the rabbit hole and spiraling and being like, oh, I feel anxious, et cetera, et cetera. The best thing you can do is go do something real in the real world. Right. So if you spent your morning scrolling on New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, like go on a run or a walk or walk your dog right after it, right? It's ways in the short term where you can teach your body and mind to shut things down, that everything is okay, the world isn't ending in your your place. Now, this is different, of course, if you're actually in Ukraine or something like that. But for most of us, that's not the case. And we, ha- we have to remind our, our brain or give it the sensory information where it says, hey, everything's okay. And I think... One of the or ways do something I, about it. Like also do something about it because anxiety is like a thought pattern. Yeah. So, so that's like give money to a charity in Ukraine or like start if you're worried about authoritarianism in this country, like start spending four hours a week, you know, volunteering for an organization that protects democracy. And while you're doing that volunteer work, I can guarantee you, you won't be anxious while you're doing the work. Um, this reminds me of something that just happened a week ago. Uh, Steve, you know about this because whenever I'm bored, I call Steve. I was driving down the road and I heard like this huge boom and I thought all my tires had blown out and I pulled over and I'm on the highway in the middle of South Carolina and I, it's just me and I pull over and my tires still have air and I get back on the road and it still sounds like my car is about to explode. And I realized that I'm dragging a piece of metal and the piece of metal had fallen from the chassis of my car. So it wasn't like I picked something up that I could just remove. So I'm on the side of I-26 West, cars are going by 80 miles an hour, I'm an hour from home, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and um, when all this happened initially, I was on the phone with my mother-in-law. So apparently later in the day, she remarked to Caitlin, my my wife, just how like good and calm and incredible I am in situations of distress. To which I responded to Caitlin, like, yeah, oh, yeah, like my anxiety is only bad about imagined problems. And I think that's true for most people, because when you're in the thing, you're doing something. And when you're doing something, it's hard to be anxious because you're doing the thing. Whereas if you're imagining the thing, that's when you can get stuck in anxiety loop. So it's not only doing the real thing, but it's work. It's particularly if you're worried about a real thing, then try to work on that real thing. And again, you will be less exhausted because you'll be physically using energy towards something productive instead of just sitting there spiraling in like a flood of cortisol stress hormone. Yeah, it's why it's why we feel anxiety before the race in the game, but when the gun goes off, we stop feeling anxiety because we're doing the thing. Yeah, regardless for those who of, are one yeah, oh sorry Steve, go ahead. I was just going to say re- almost regardless of like if it's going well or or not. Like doing the thing has a anxiety relieving effect. Yeah, for those who are wondering, poor Steve, because I was so calm and collected while I was waiting for the tow truck to come, I just called Steve and I'm like, "Steve, I'm on the side of the highway. I got 30 minutes. What's up?" 
<laughs> Steve's like, Brad, it's a Sunday. This is my no news day. But don't worry. Steve wasn't at all anxious that my car almost exploded on the highway. You know, I'm confident you're going to make it make it out. It's all going to work out. So you called yeah. me, so I knew it was okay. If if you don't if you don't call me for a couple of days, that's when I know you might be dead. Yeah. All right. Well, um, back to back back to the topic. the The third thing I think that is really important, and maybe the last thing that we should talk about, it's also something that we've written about pretty extensively, is the difference between real fatigue and fake fatigue. So real fatigue is your mind body system is actually tired, and the best thing to do is rest. Fake fatigue is when the mind-body system has been so tired for so long that even after you rest for an appropriate amount of time, you still stay shut down. And the easiest way to describe this is when athletes taper, they almost always include a few bouts of high-intensity exercise for short durations right before the race. And the whole purpose of this is to kind of wake up the system from hibernation. So... If you are listening to this and you're like, yeah, I've been tired all the time, but I've also been sleeping more than normal and resting, you might not need more rest. What you might need is like a little jump start to your system and to kind of fight through. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I'm tired all the time and I've never given myself that opportunity to rest, well, then you might actually need a rest. And rest, meaning like sleep, really shutting things down. I don't, I don't, what I mean by rest is not like tuning out from all the, the, the notifications. That's something that I think we should just do all the time to the extent that we can. So, you know, Brad, as I, I, I sit here and think about this and I, I think you're spot on here is that I often think about this in terms of exercise, using the example of tapering, like you said, like you got to keep the, the system primed. If you don't prime the system, then it kind of goes into hibernation, you know, oh, we're shut down mode. Um, I think this is why on the internet, you are seeing a lot of people like go into the trendy, jump into, uh, you know, and do an ice plunge idea, right? It's the latest trend for a lot of reasons, but I think the primary reason is probably because people feel kind of anxious, feel kind of tired, like we've talked about all this time. And what do they do? They jump in a ice cold bath. You get a shot of adrenaline because your body's like, why are we in a freezing tub of water? And then you feel you're like, oh, I'm energized afterwards. I'm great. I'm great. Like this, the ice plunge is amazing. And all you've done is like got that hit of stress response to make you like to jolt yourself out of this, this, this kind of fake tiredness, this fake fatigue that's going on. So, you know, what I would tell people is, you know, Brad and I, you can see our views on ice plunges on Twitter every once in a while, but is there are so many different avenues that you can do if you're feeling like that and ice plunge is one of them. But as I talked about earlier, so is going for a walk playing with your kids, playing with your dog, going for a run, lifting some weights, renting up a hill, like whatever you want to do that causes like a little hit of this adrenaline and excitement, which gets you out of the fake fatigue. Now, if you're real fatigued and you did that, guess what would happen? It wouldn't work. You'd go outside, you try and go for your run and you'd be like, holy crap, I'm out of breath. Like I'm done. Like this isn't exciting. This isn't energizing. This is I'm I'm exhausted still. 
Or in the case of the ice plunge, you'd get sick after, or like you'd shiver for the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. And, and y'all know that Steven, I think that a lot of the purported like metabolism, brown fat benefits of ice plunge, like there's just not enough evidence to support their wild assertions. But I do think one area where cold water immersion is super helpful is just this, like it's a really effective spark to the system. It doesn't take a lot of time. And for a lot of people, that's more appetizing, appealing, accessible than going for a run or deadlifting or doing something like that. Uh, so here, I think that it's it's a useful thing. Uh, I had my first ice plunge uh, in a long time, maybe three weeks ago, and it was great. We no, I did not like go in a freezing cold shower and do the Wim Hof breathing method, although maybe I should. But we got a late winter snow here in Asheville. And my friend, Andy, the oldest 43 year old you'll ever meet, uh, is like, you got to come sit in the hot tub with me and have a popsicle in the hot tub because he's the oldest 43 year old man you'll ever meet. So we went in the hot tub. I brought Theo. He's got kids that are the same age. And, um, of course, what do the kids want to do? They want to make snow angels and then jump in the hot tub. So we did that. And I'll tell you what, it was great. You feel totally freaking alive and your skin prickles and all that good stuff. And of, of course, with some of the benefit that I was with friends and with my son, yeah. But there is a real benefit to, to like jolting the system. But to Steve's point, I think that we shouldn't judge one type of jolt over another. Uh, there are many ways to do it. And you better tread carefully if you're actually tired. Because as Steve said, like the last thing you want to do if you're actually tired is like give yourself like, you know, freezing water that is a huge physiological toll to your system or go bury yourself doing an interval workout. Um, so to be clear, this is for individuals that are pretty certain that they've like already tried rest. And this is more of a snap you out of the rut than actual recovery because it's not recovery. It's adding a stressor, but it's a stressor that's different than, you know, CNN.com. Yeah, exactly. It's that it's that rapid activation and also that rapid decline afterwards, which kind of realigns your system. And I think also makes you feel like there's something about feeling different sensations, emotions, et cetera, that come with it. You mentioned the the tingle of your uh, your skin, for example, like that also. And this is me speaking, not necessarily science, but like the more sensations we feel, the kind of more it can like jolt us back into kind of reality and um and all that good stuff so i think those are important things is there anything else we're missing on trying you know to get out of this kind of fatigue state i don't think so but even when you talk about things and you say it's just you not science it turns out to be science i mean what you just described is one of the central premises of dialectical behavioral therapy which is uh, put yourself in your body more frequently, uh, particularly when you're experiencing tough mindsets and, and, and mind states or states of mind. Um, so that that can work really well for people that struggle with emotional control uh, because you can get like really wrapped up in feeling all these emotions and then your brain starts to tell you a story about why you're feeling those emotions. And if you just like do a hundred push-ups or jumping jacks, well, suddenly your brain doesn't do the normal story because now you have a reason to be feeling all these emotions. So it just like retrains you that 
not everything you're sensationing, not every sensation you're experiencing in your body has to be tied to a narrative. It can just be. Uh, so, man, look at this guy. Even when he's just pontificating, evidence-based pontifications. That's what I go for. You know, but so much of this, you know, is it's almost like the way I tend to think of it is our brain starts to make bad predictions when we're in this anxiety uncertainty state, right? It tends to think like, oh, we're feeling this anxiety or this fatigue because of why. And it grasps onto, again, the candy solution instead of maybe the real, you know, longer term solution. And I think all we're trying to do is kind of realign and, and get it to make normal predictions again, which you can do by turning down the stimulus, stop watching news all the time so that your brain doesn't think, hey, like the world is super dangerous and crazy around me because all the information I'm consuming is telling me that when really it's, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away and doesn't impact you for most of us. Okay. Or you can realign those predictions by saying, hey, I know we've got this chronic low-level arousal state, but hey, remember what it's like to actually respond to a stressor? Like feel the stressor, then get rid of it. Like this is how it's supposed to do. So sometimes I think it, it, it it's almost like we have to tell our brain like, hey, I know you're responding in this way, but we should be responding in this way over here. So let's, let's get used to it. And, and in a lot of ways, this is no different than the old trick um, that is again validated when we look at, you know, performing in sports or performing on stage of like seeing anxiety as excitement. Like that works really well under what I'd call fake fatigue situations or fake anxiety situations where it's not really life threatening. It doesn't work well under actual life threatening, but in 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 the not at not life threatening phase, what it does is it just realigns your yourself with reality. Like you tell your brain, "Hey, I know you think that a bear is chasing me, but I'm really just stepping onto the starting line of a race to see if I can run around an oval, you know, fast four times, and no one really cares how I do besides myself, my coach, and my." my loved ones who will still love me even if I get dead last. And, and, and for God's sakes, turn off the news. Um, it's bad enough to check it on your computer, but to have it like, you know, hologrammed into your house or in 4D or whatever. Uh, one of the great things about 2016 for my family was Caitlin, my wife, was a news watcher and came from a family of news watchers. So every morning in the background, like CNN or MSNBC would be on. And I never liked it, ever. And I would wear headphones listening to music, but it was a battle that I just didn't want to fight or didn't think was worth fighting at the time. Uh, and then Donald Trump got elected. And Caitlin just said for us and our values, like, nope, no more news. I can't do it. Nope, no more news. And we haven't brought it back. And now sometimes when we'll go visit certain members of our family or certain members of our family will come see us, the news is just on as like a part of the morning routine. And I can see Caitlin, like her blood boils. Like she's like puts her hands over her ears and she's like, turn this off. 
And um, I was telling this with, to, to someone and, and like the, the topic of privilege came up and like, well, is it a privilege to be able to turn off the news? And I'm like, yeah, but that's only because it's a privilege to be able to watch the news. Like the people that are actually out there suffering, they're not fucking watching Morning Joe or Meet the Press. So I hate to break it to you, to myself, to Caitlin, to anyone, but you got to like decipher between how much of this is actual information that you're going to do something about versus just entertainment. In watching action movies all the time or horror movies is not a good way to be in a calm and collected state. Um, and remember, man, like if it bleeds, it leads. It's the first thing you learn in journalism school way back in the day for newspapers. And now it's like if it bleeds, it gets eyeballs. So it's a really distorted view of reality. Uh, this conversation, and clearly this is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot, is really making me think like the best way to consume news is likely through a hard copy newspaper at most daily, perhaps ideally a few times a week. Knowing that if there is a direct threat in your local area, yeah, then you can turn on the apps that are going to ping and tell you when you need to take cover. But thankfully, most of us aren't in those situations very often, if ever. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's there's lots and lots of research on that fact. Um, there's even a theory called mean world syndrome, where we watch a lot of news and all of a sudden we think the world is very mean and dangerous and threatening and all that stuff. So, it, it, you know, again, I, I'll come back to the brain view is your brain only knows what your sensory information tells it. It's just stuck in your head. So if you're filling it with visual audio, et cetera, um, information that tells you the world is dangerous and you should be worried and, you know, these people are coming to get you, then, you know what, your brain's going to start responding as if that is the case. On a lighter note, for those who are younger than us and don't suffer from any kind of substance use disorder, a hell of a drinking game for the college crew that listens to the podcast would be how often Steve says research. Like you got to take a shot every time. And if he says lots and lots and it's followed by research, it's two beers. Uh, I'm not saying that we endorse this. You could also, you know, do something healthier, like run an interval. But, you know, Steve, when you said lots and lots, I'm thinking in my head, I would bet $100,000 the next word is going to be research. You know, I just got to bring the the science to this this podcast so that we don't just sit back and uh, and quote philosophers all day in ancient wisdom. You know, we got to we got to balance each other out here. All right. Well, I'm going to do my thing and summarize here at the end um, before we thank you all for joining us, because I think we covered a lot of ground. We went on a few good tangents, but uh, today hopefully is, is pretty concrete. So we started with this thesis, this argument that so many people are feeling tired all the time. We said that it's due to two main uh, phenomena. One is a imagined increase in the chaos of the world due to our 24-7 drip of information on everything that's happening everywhere all the time. And the other cause is a real increase in chaos in the world, starting with the election of Donald Trump, including the social unrest that accompanies Black Lives Matter, 
COVID and more recently war in Europe. You put those two things together, you get this perfect storm of nonstop arousal. Well, eventually in a nonstop aroused state, the body gets tired and it goes into fatigue. That's why we're feeling tired all the time. What do we do about it? We try to cut back on the imagined craziness by really trying to take control of the stimulus that's hitting us all day, every day, throughout the day, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, for things that are true problems, if we're going to engage in those things, we want to do it in a way where we're actually working on the problem. Because if you're working on the thing, then you're not worrying about the thing. Or as Steve put it, for the athletes in the crowd, it's why you're more worried before the race than during the race. Um, we also talked about the importance of reconnecting socially uh, and all the great scientific reasons for why during times of true stress, the best thing that we can do for our nervous system is to surround ourselves with other people. Uh, am I missing anything in the summary? I think that was great, Brad. Well done. All right. There you go. A philosopher and a summarizer on this end of the mic. Um, we appreciate y'all. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you like the podcast, please rate it, review it, do whatever you can to spread the word with friends, with family, with colleagues. Uh, we want to keep this bad boy rolling. And um, with that, we'll catch y'all next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.